0: let me invite you now as we uh, turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We will read two passages, one from Galatians and one from Colossians. Galatians 3 beginning in verse 1, we will read verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Please turn now to Colossians chapter 2, and we will look uh, at verse 16 and read through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up, without reason, by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed ha- uh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the bo- uh, body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we come now to consider the truth of your word, we do pray that you would grant to us by your Spirit illumination. Would you please turn the lights on in this dark, dark world in which we live? And there is darkness yet in us. And we pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see and behold wonderful truth. From your word that will transform us, that will renew us, that will for some of us make us new again. And this we pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now as we're doing this series on the gospel reset, I'm going to start probing into the relationship between the Christian and the law of God. And that is a rather complicated subject but before doing so I I wanted to say this legalism is the state in which all of us are born. We're natural born legalists, nobody escapes it. Because Adam and Eve drank the poison in Eden, that is Satan's lie, they began to, uh, to see out of their fallenness a way to try to relate to their creator and it became one of both being a con man and a manipulator basically fallen people all of us are born this way look at a relationship with god this way we see who he is and we decide it to ourselves we will work and through that work We will put God into debt to us, and therefore he has an obligation to bless us. A quid pro quo arrangement, this for that, if I try to be a good person. If I try to follow the Ten Commandments, that is, if I do my best to love my wife and my family, if I do my best to be a good citizen and a good employee, then God will notice that and he will weigh that on the scales. And therefore, since I have done that, just like you go to work every day, you put your employer in debt to you, they owe you for your work we transfer that to God. And so it's only natural for us to think that way about every relationship we have. For example, husbands and wives can relate that way. I've been especially good this week. Why don't you do something to honor my goodness? Why don't you give me this for that? Children and parents can have that kind of relationship. I remember one of the most amazing things my father ever did was the following there was one particular day I remember that we had been severe knuckleheads I mean knuckleheads beyond knuckleheadia we had uh, all three gotten into trouble and I think my mother was ready to just pack up and leave the house and leave us I know you can't imagine that happening but that that did happen and so my dad came home and usually when we'd had that kind of day and dad came home it, it was not good uh, he was not going to be happy to be met at the door with the story of us. And so he came in, and he seemed like he was in a pretty good mood till my mother started talking to him. Next thing I knew, I heard this. I want all three of you boys outside now in the back of my truck. Of course, my first thought, "What well, is is this going to be so bad? He's taking us somewhere else. <laughs> so we got in the back of the truck, and he's driving us and of course we're like dogs you know we're looking around for the vet you know we don't know where we're going we're thinking you know we're in familiar territory it was streets we knew and of all things he pulls up into the parking lot of a dairy castle an ice cream place and he goes to the window and he buys us three dipped ice cream cones that's soft custard dipped in chocolate came back handed them to us and he said I want you boys to straighten up and I want you to think about it, what I've just done. You know what my dad did there? He showed me grace. He gave me something I didn't deserve, and I didn't know how to deal with that. I thought, maybe he's lost his mind. I, 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 I just could not comprehend what he was doing, but instead of punishing me, which was exactly what I deserved, I deserved to be spanked aggressively and that's the only way my dad knew how to do it. He never abused me, never beat me. Some of you think that's wrong anyway, and you can if you want to. However, he gave me an ice cream cone, and I thought to myself, that's the best ice cream cone I've ever had in my life. We were just in the back seat rejoicing, breathing sighs of relief, and what was he trying to get across to us? I think in his way, without saying the words, he wanted us to understand sometimes you just have a bad day, sometimes you mess up, and what you really need is an ice cream cone. And that's what the gospel says. We are inveterate legalists. It is in our nature to be so. And hopefully most of us who are believers now are in the process of recovering from legalism, but it is a deadly uh, poison that still infects us all. And some people get insulted when I tell you you're a legalist. Don't be. You just are. (laughs) And so am I. And I'm repenting of it constantly. And that's what I mean by point number one. Legalism has a way of creeping in our thinking about the relationship between our justification and our sanctification. And legalism is so subtle and it seems so right, and it seems to give me control so that I can work things out to my advantage. And it just makes fallen sense in every way. An element uh, that threatened, of course, the young Galatian church, having begun with Christ, Paul tells them, they have, uh, as a result of that, through the Spirit. Fulfilling in them everything the law required, now they were ending with the flesh by adding something to Christ. Paul is basically addressing some false teachers who had come in after him, referred to as Judaizers, who believed the following. Yes, Paul, you can can graphically portray Christ crucified as the message of the gospel. Yes, we like that. Yes, we believe that. But, and anything after the but is heresy here's what they said. In order for you to reach full status, to really be a mature Christian, to really be in, to really be ones who are blessed by God, you must go back and receive circumcision. You must submit uh, yourself again to the law of God in order to have a relationship with God. You need to go back to a kind of covenant works arrangement between yourself and God. And Paul is just, he said, who bewitched you? Who gave you uh, that voodoo hoodoo? Who Who did that? Well, obviously it was the devil. The devil knows how to prey upon us. And so the Galatian church was swallowing the bait. And Paul says, think about it for a minute, guys. How in the world did you ever become accepted in the first place. It was obviously through the preaching of the cross. And now you want to add something to the gospel? Now you want to say, in order to be on the right side of the line, which is where we all want to be, isn't it? Don't we all want to be on the right side of the line? So much fun to be on the right side and look at everybody who's on the wrong side. You see, that can happen to us as reformed Christians because there ain't very many of us, and so one of the big, one of the big defense mechanisms that we often do is we often draw a line and say everybody on this side of the line is okay, everybody is on that side of the line is not okay. Well, listen, I just did a funeral a few days ago with a Dallas Theological Seminary dispensationalist, and his message was powerful and wonderful and thrilled my soul. And some of you said, that can't be. Well, we didn't talk too much about eschatology. But it was powerful. The second thing I read you regarding the church at Colossae was another heretical movement had started in that church, which was basically more Platonism than it was the gospel. Most of you have heard of Plato. Maybe you haven't studied Plato in depth, but Plato was an impressive philosopher. Some have even called him a Christian before Christ. I wouldn't go that far. But Plato was brilliant. And so Plato had this theory of forms and substance. Plato would say this. He would come in the room and I would say, Plato, how do you like my new pulpit? Plato would say, Well, actually, Tim, that's not a real pulpit. What this is is something in the form of a pulpit that has pulpit-ness about it, but it isn't really a pulpit. So obviously Plato and his philosophy wasn't much into material things, wasn't much into the body. And so the whole Colossian heresy is just basically you got to spiritualize everything. And in order to bring your heart under control, you've got to abuse the body. You've got to restrain yourself. You've got to develop all of these disciplines in order to make yourself more spiritual, therefore gaining advantage, and you will then reach what was called fullness. And Paul had already said, no, all the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. When you have him, you have all the fullness of the Godhead. But they were teaching people people that in order to be complete in order to reach fullness of the spirit you have to learn to asceticism is basically the denial and restriction of b- the body in order to control the heart and there are all kinds of eastern mysticism that try to teach us the same thing that many of us may fall victim to and you got to be careful with that stuff But there was a second thing, too, that Paul addressed at the Ephesian church, and that, not the Ephesian, but Colossian church, and that was this. They were into higher spirituality. They were into visions. They were into dreams. They were into angel worship. They were into all kinds of mysticism. And so Paul comes along and says, that, that, All this, do not eat certain foods, do not touch certain things, do not handle all of this. He says that's destined to perish with the using. He says, forget about that. That's heresy. That's false teaching. Here's the conclusion I've come to in my short life. When you don't really understand the gospel in any kind of depth, you are a sucker for gospel substitutes you will every single time fall because there's a vacuum created when you don't really get that what makes you good what makes you okay what makes you righteous is what Jesus has done on your behalf you will add to the gospel it is inevitable your heart can't stand it there's a vacuum in your consciousness and you try to add to it and you try to muscle up your spirituality That's pretty much a description of the first 10 years of my Christian life, was trying all of these things because I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand what I had when Christ was united with me and all of the benefits that ensued from that relationship. And so I was always looking around for the next best thing to fill the hole in my soul. And the hole in my soul was because I didn't know what Jesus was to me. And I didn't understand grace, and I didn't understand all that reality. And so I can remember the pressure of being uh, a Bible study leader and the pressure of always having to come up with something new, uh, something deeper, something more uh, powerful, something more uh, advanced, something beyond. And whoever didn't have what I had was on the wrong side of the line. And so you would make fun of them. And it was, it was a treadmill, a terrible treadmill to be on until God, one day by his grace, through the Spirit, showed me that when you have Jesus, you've got all you can stand and all that you need. But we like to drink that poison of Eden. And we're just either con men or manipulators in our relationships. And it shows up. It shows up. So, after considering those two things, Paul says something like this. In demanding that you qualify for fullness... This teaching is really evacuating you of the power of justification and sanctification which are yours in Christ, in whom you have died, been buried, and raised, and whose ascension has brought you into the heavenly realm. By contrast, since you are in Christ, all of whose benefits are now yours, of course you must put off everything that's inconsistent with being in him and grow in those graces that express a life like The plus on offer is actually a conditionalism that will break, uh, that will bankrupt our souls. Paul calls us to walk in Christ just as we first received him, by grace through faith, apart from works, yet working by love. Now, when we come to our relationship to the law of God and the imperatives of the gospel, we have the indicatives, that are what, that is what Christ has done for us, who he is, what he's done. You might even call that theological uh, truth and statements. But we have imperatives, commands, what we are to do because. Not if, but because. So let me go through uh, this distinction between the covenant of works and the rule of life. To speak of the law as a covenant of works or as a rule of life is theological language that pretty much emerges from the 17th century and 18th century, and it is the language of the confession of of faith. It may sound alien and unfamiliar to us in its categories, but whatever your personal theological tradition is, this shorthand expresses a significant truth. The ongoing function of God's law is not to serve as a standard we must meet in order to be justified, but as a guide for how we express our gratitude in Christian living. I like to say that the law of God in the hands of the Spirit, in the life of a believer, is like guardrails. Guardrails. I remember one time riding uh, across the... um, Intercontinental Divide in Colorado, and I wasn't driving, but I was scared to death. Mark Anderson was driving, by the way. Do you remember that? Do You remember how narrow that road was? On the one side was the mountain, on the other side, nothing. And people had pulled their mirrors in on the side of their car to keep from hitting one another. There was no margin for error. I have to say, Mark Anderson impressed me with his ability to drive through there and not even touch anything else. I was so glad it was him driving. But the law is like a guardrail. We need guardrails in our life. We are so subject to destroying ourselves, to crossing boundaries that we shouldn't cross. And so the law in many ways is a wonderful gift to us from God. But according to the confession of faith, true believers are are not under the law as a covenant of works to be therefore justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well to others as a rule of life. Whether we employ the time-honored language of the covenant of works or not, the point being made is important. For legalism arises not only out of a distortion of the grace of God, but also from a warped view of the law of God. We could put it this way. Legalism begins to manifest itself when we view God's law as a contract with conditions to be fulfilled and not as the implications of a covenant graciously given to us. God's covenant, by the way, is his sovereign, freely bestowed, unconditional promise to us that I will be your God and that you, therefore, by implication, will be my people. By contrast, a contract would sound like this. A contract would be in the form, I will be your God if you live like my people. Then you will be my people, if you live as becomes my people. It is the difference between therefore and if. The former introduces the implication of a relationship that has been established. The latter introduces conditions under which a relationship will be established. In the history of theology, the definition of doctrine and exposition of scripture, it has often been unhelpfully stated up front that a covenant is a contract. That's unfortunate. I do not agree with that. But a clear distinction should be made between the two uh, concepts. Contract does not necessarily imply either a sovereign action or a gracious disposition on the part of the contractor. It lacks the unconditional self-giving element present in a covenant. I will be. Conditions are written into a contract following negotiations. A covenant is made unconditionally. God's covenants carry implications, but none of them is the result of divine human negotiations. This principle is expressed in two features found in Scripture course the New Testament writers had more than Greek wor- one Greek word at their disposal to translate the word covenant or berith from the Old Testament. One was suntheke and the other was diatheke. Suntheke hints probably more in contractual terms. Therefore they used the word diatheke which indicated there was no negotiations but rather uh, God's covenant was and is a gift. The biblical metaphor that comes chiefly to mind when we think about God's covenant is that of marriage. On the contrary, the couple commit themselves to each other unconditionally. There is no conditional clause in a marriage concept or covenant. On the contrary, the couples commit themselves to each other unconditionally, for better, for worse, for richer, or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It is out of this unconditional self-giving of one partner that the implications of the covenant are so massive for the other partner. Thus, the covenant carries no conditions. There is no I will if you will which involves massive implications, she has, therefore I must. Similarly, when God made a covenant with his people, the connection between his actions and theirs was never an if, but a therefore. In contemporary terms, God states the indicative, his commitment to his people, and that in turn gives rise to the imperative, the implications for the lifestyle of his people. The implications are the own working of that declaration. So, the nature of the Mosaic Covenant uh, was much discussed throughout the history of the church By no no means all theologians and pastors held the same view, but the confession of faith adopts a consensus view seeing the Sinaitic covenant as a further expression of the Abrahamic covenant of grace. It did so because of the background in which the Ten Commandments were originally given, in which God was remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's law itself was prefaced by a statement of its context in his redemptive acts in the Exodus event. Thus the indicatives of his grace grounded the imperative of his law. The indicative was, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, a number of theologians believe that Sinai was a national republication of the covenant of works with a particular, unique, theocratic group of people called Israel. Not for all people, all time, in all places. The Ten Commandments, however, were the matter of both covenants, uh, both the covenant of grace and the Sinai covenant. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here because I know I'll lose some of you, and I'm about to lose myself here. But there is a point of the distinction in the covenant of faith between the law as a covenant of works and the law as a rule for our life. Of course, before we are in Christ, all we see in the law is our condemnation. But as Paul is at great pains to stress uh, throughout his writings, the law is good, it's just, and it's holy. And we need to understand, sense, and feel, and then delight in the grace of the law. For unless we are persuaded that God has shown his grace in his law as well as in his Son, all we will hear at Sinai is thunder and lightning. And one of the great Scottish theologians, John Colquhoun, said the following, the distinction of the divine law, especially into the law as a covenant of works and as a rule of life, is very important distinction. It is a scriptural distinction and is necessary in the hand of the Spirit to qualify believers for understanding clearly the grace and glory of the gospel as well as the acceptable manner of performing every duty required in the law. "...to distinguish truly and uh, clearly between the law as a covenant and the law as a rule is, as Luther expressed it, the key which opens the hidden treasure of the gospel." No sooner had the spirit of truth given Luther a glimpse of that distinction than he declared that he seemed to be admitted into paradise and that the whole face of Scripture was changed for him. Indeed, without a spiritual and true knowledge of that distinction, a man can neither discern nor love nor obey acceptably the truth as it is in Jesus." So, the law is never the means of justification. Except in the sense that Jesus Christ has kept the law for me in my place. But its substance is the moral shape salvation takes. It is, after all, through the gospel gift of the Spirit, that the law was written on the heart, not as a covenant of works, but as a rule of life. And even if we are unfamiliar with this terminology, we need to become familiar with the biblical truth it seeks to express. And so the law in the hands of sin condemns me, gives me nowhere to go, shows me the holiness of God. The law in some sense is a transcript of God's character. It shows us who the real God is. The law exposes our sin and drives us to Christ but it never becomes the means to ever establish a relationship with God or to continue a relationship with God through my obedience, but rather is something I desire to obey and fulfill 100% of the time out of gratitude for grace given. If you then can become a person, and I'll say more about this next week, who finds himself, like the psalmist, delighting in the law of God, because the law no longer has the power to condemn you. So let's move to the third point, which is diagnosis and remedy. Now there's much more than I can say this morning on this, which is why it's going to take more than one week But in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, the Apostle Paul gives expression to a profound cry of grief and perhaps frustration. Listen, he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. So how did this, how is this to influence our understanding of that relationship? Believers are now free from the law as a covenant of works. Christ has both kept commandments for us and paid the penalty for the breach in our place. We are free from condemnation and the reign of sin. And Paul made that very clear in the book of Romans, chapter 321 through 623. But we are not yet free from the presence of sin. And until that day dawns, we will still be haunted by the specter of the law seen as we once saw it exclusively as a condemning power. True, we who were once sold under sin, upon whom sin had closed the mortgage, have now been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Yet, so long as the law uncovers sin in our lives, we are liable to fall back into the old legal view of ourselves." And that's how we are seduced and slide back into a legalistic viewpoint. That is why the psychology of the old life can take much longer to shift than our theology of the old life. We understand the gospel yet there's a continuity in the person who lived under the laws condemnation and knew nothing of God's grace in Christ We have moved into a new house, fully paid for, but it may take a long time before it loses all the vestiges of its former owner. So with us, there remains in us much that can easily stimulate legalistic instincts in our past. That's why legalism is always a present danger for us all. Thus, many Christians find that the sunshine of God's grace in Christ is obscured and they walk uncertainly in the dark instead of in the light. They need to learn that Jesus is more full of grace than I am of sin. John Bunyan's pilgrim was not the first nor the last to wander out of the way toward the house of Mr. Legalist or Mr. Legality. This was evidently a major concern of the reformers. Christians are dead to the law and yet in the best of the children of God here there are such remains of the legal disposition and inclination of the heart to the way of the covenant of works that as they are never quite free from it in their best duties, so at some times their service smells so rank of it as if they were alive to the law and still dead to Christ. And sometimes the Lord, for their correction, trial, and exercise of faith, suffers the ghost of the dead husband, the law, as a covenant of works to come in upon our souls and make demands of them, command, threaten, and affright, them as if they were alive to it and to them and it's one of the hardest pieces of practical religion to be dead to the law in such cases. The law no longer because of Christ's fulfillment of it and because of Christ's gift of his fulfillment to us no longer can condemn us but because of the vestiges and remains of indwelling sin we find ourselves still feeling condemned by it. And I think that's true. I don't think there's any doubt about that for all of us. And in such cases, uh, it is very difficult to hear that there is therefore now no condemnation to the ones who are in Christ Jesus. In terms of the marriage metaphor that Paul uses, in Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6, the old marriage to the law is finished. Yet many in the second marriage to Christ may still be haunted by the memory of the former husband. Now think about that. Think about marrying someone who'd been married to someone else for 25 years and you've been married to them for one year. Isn't it possible, more likely, that occasionally that might come up? when unthinkingly one may say, well, my husband didn't do it that way, or he didn't say it that way, or he didn't see it that way. It's just inevitable that that might happen. Yet, there's one remedy to live in the awareness that the new husband abounds in more grace than the abusive husband did in condemnation. It is this that will produce what Thomas Chalmers, famously described as the expulsive power of a new affection. This is gospel Christology, gospel theology, and gospel psychology as well. So what have I said to you this morning? Legalism is subtle and it creeps its way back into our hearts and steals our joy and clouds our assurance. And threatens our security and we have to recognize that we don't need to break our neck running after gospel substitutes people who have less than sound and adequate theology always feel the need to add something because it's not working for it's just not working and so we have to add something to make it sexier to to build it up But if you truly, truly ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart and your eyes to see the depths of the gospel, it isn't that we need to move on from the gospel to something else. It is that we need to go deeper in the realities of the gospel for all of these things our hearts long for. And so next week, I want to preach a sermon that I think will help us deal with this legalism creep, this legalistic creep in our hearts and it will be on the grace of the law. We want to talk about the proper use of the law because legalism is not only an abuse of grace, but it's also an abuse of the law of God. And we need to learn how to properly see God's law given to us in Scripture. Law here not being ceremonial, not being... um, nationalistic for Israel, not being dietary and all of those laws, but rather moral law like the Ten Commandments. Why are they God's gift of grace to us? You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have full freedom to experience joy uh, beyond anything we can know. We thank you for your mercy and grace which helps us see that we can easily be disqualified and robbed of the assurance in Christ and be made to feel unspiritual, unfaithful, and in need of something extra, something more than and higher than the cross. And sometimes we get introspective and depressed over our lack of advancement And the more that people push these experiences of greater depth and spirituality, the more our confidence is uh, dissuaded away from the cross. So we pray that we would learn to see Jesus and him only and that we would behold his glory upon the cross and forever be remade by that power. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give today as those of us who understand we're not in a contract with you, we're in a covenant with you, and we give not in order to get credit with you, but we give to express our gratitude, which you so richly deserve. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.